information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the podcast. Today, I have Joel Wilkinson with Caesar Lake Outfitters on the podcast. Uh, I follow him on Instagram, and I'm always looking at all of the incredible moose and caribou uh, that, that they're always posting up, especially being in, you know, being from Wyoming. Uh, we have Shirish moose here. So when I, when I see the, the moose that he's posting, it's just like always in awe, but uh, really excited to have Joel on today and just kind of discuss his background and how he got into outfitting and kind of what, uh, what a behind the scenes look at outfitting is, you know, what it requires, what preparation looks like. And I'm sure we'll get into a couple stories. So thanks for hopping on the podcast, Joel. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Um, yeah, looking forward to chatting about this. And it's, uh, I don't know, I live and breathe this lifestyle and it's kind of take it for granted a little bit. And so it's nice to have somebody interested in what I do. Oh man, like I say, I, I remember uh, one of the first pictures, I wasn't even following yet and it went by and I was like, oh my gosh, look at the size of that caribou. <laughs> and uh, I had to start following you and from then on, I just, I'm, I'm always watching and, and uh, always, always interested in what you have going on. Cause I know that, you know, whether, whether it's, uh, you know, hunting in, in some, something like Wyoming or the Yukon or, you know, Kodiak Island, um, it still requires hunting. It still requires preparation. It still requires, you know, skills and, and animal knowledge and knowing what they're going to do and everything like that. So I'm just, I'm really interested to, to learn about that from you. Cause you know, obviously we don't, we don't have why we don't have a caribou here or, or anything like that. So uh, we don't even really have the type of terrain or landscape that you have, you know? So just interested in, in kind of the whole picture. So what, what was it that, that, uh, that got you interested in being an outfitter and, and how did you kind of start down that, that road? Uh, it was kind of like thrown right into my lap because I was born into an outfitting family. So yeah, it was kind of a no brainer. I uh, grew up with it. Uh, my parents bought the current outfit that, well, I currently own, uh, in 1983, and they worked in it since 1979. So uh, basically, they ran it for 30 years and offered it to me after that. And yeah, it was an absolute no-brainer to continue on with that. Uh, and being in the Yukon, it's, I don't know, we're, we're very, very lucky, in my opinion. It's the hunting concessions, uh, you actually have a designated chunk of land that is yours and you have to purchase it from somebody and it's yours until you sell you just you get to look after it you get to manage it uh it's very remote so we're we're really the only people that hunt it and uh yeah so we get to watch our animal levels we can really we we have a lot of area to move around if one area you know has a forest fire and burns out and you know, we can move over to another spot until it recovers after a year or two. And then obviously Forest Fire Creek's really a lot of great habitat. So then we can move to that spot again in a couple of years once it's regrown and animals are back in it. And so yeah, we get a lot of a lot of advantages with the concession system in the Yukon of and well just the overall size of the land. Our concession is just a shade under nine million acres. Uh, there's currently not one person living year-round in the concession, just to show you how remote it is. Uh, there's a Nine few old mining roads. <laughs> Holy yeah. smokes. That is giant. That's so cool. Yeah, and, and it is. It's just it's really remote. Uh, probably our biggest challenges is logistics accessing country like that with no roads so 
Uh, most of our stuff is done by bush plane, um, float planes, wheel planes, and we have jet boats, hovercrafts, Argos, quads, snowmobiles, basically every means of transportation to, to get into a remote area. Dang. Do you, uh, do you guys use like, uh, horses and things like that very often as well? Or <laughs> yes, actually that was one of the main ones we use. And awesome. uh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So, you know, with the horses, we, we run 30 horses and we usually run two, two different rotating camps. So we split the herd into 15 per string and one camp has one guide and a horse wrangler, um, just a helper. And the other camp has two guides and a horse wrangler, and they're anywhere from 40 to 70 miles apart. And uh, the way it works is uh, they usually end a hunt at a lake or an airstrip, and a plane will fly in to new clients, and the old clients go back out with all the, the meat and antlers and cakes, and then they go hunt for seven to 10 days. and end up at another spot where they can swap out, get resupplied and haul the meat out and, and uh, kind of how it works. And at the end of the season, then the horses all get trailed back out of the mountains, which can be as far as five days from the closest road to get back out. And, uh, you know, then we trailer them all into our pasture in town and yeah, and then they get the next 10 months off until they go out again for another two months. And, the august september wow so so much stuff came up like i i had no idea that uh that you guys had you know what you called uh your i think your hunting concession um that's insane because you know uh, a lot and you may know uh, there's a lot of people in the in the united states that they you know they'll lease certain portions of land or they'll own portions so that they can control the hunting rights on that and uh the hardest part there though as you can imagine is those leases aren't near as big as yours obviously um but you know, here you are on your little 80 to, to 200, you know, 80 to 500 maybe acres, if you're lucky, lot trying to control all these, you know, the size of the deer, the quality of the deer and manage them and all that stuff. But the neighbors all around you are just, well, we just want to shoot whatever, you know, so it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's so hard, but that's so crazy that, that uh that that that's you know allocated to you guys um i can imagine that 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 is really helpful for you know when it comes to looking at how many clients you want to book for specific species and and everything like that right yeah for sure it's it, it is really nice with that large land mass and uh nobody else hunting in it like it we can selectively shoot our older mature animals, which you know you get your your trophies out of, or in my opinion, it's it's a trophy with you know big antlers or horns, but you also are maximizing the size of the animal, so we get you know seven hundred pounds of meat off of a big mature bull moose versus a meat hunter's moose, a yearling bull is two hundred two hundred and fifty pounds, so in every way it's benefiting. Um, taking those older mature animals but uh, yeah it's just uh, kind of cool with uh, when you when you leave an animal you see a young up-and-coming four-year-old bull moose that's looking really really good you can actually let that moose go and have a good chance of finding him the next year like we don't uh, deal with other hunters shooting them you do run the risk of wolves grizzly bear black bear bad winters uh, deal to the animals because we're in a very northern climate so uh, lots of predators and harsh winters so that's the only thing we actually have competing with us that yeah i i could imagine our, you know with uh because I, I know the the wolves and things they sure play heck on uh on our moose and our elk here in wyoming for sure um 
I, th I would, you guys have a lot more of them than we do though. Um, do you, I would, do you guys offer, uh, predator hunts, you know, bear and, and wolf and stuff like that as well? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we're, we're still able to hunt grizzly bears in the Yukon territory. We have uh, a very, very healthy population and increasing. So, uh, we have a very liberal, um, harvest of them. So, uh, we can actually issue a grizzly tag to every one of our hunters that comes in the fall and it's a low success hunt. They're hard to, to find and, you know, find a mature big boar. So uh, we don't end up shooting a lot in a, in a year, but everybody does have op the opportunity to shoot one if they do see one. So we offer that black bear kind of just common like everywhere else in North America and uh, wolves you're allowed shooting two. Uh, per hunting license as a non-resident and residents can shoot seven so we are able to shoot them which is nice and uh, we also do uh, one of the main reasons why we do have uh, really good game populations within our area is we live here year-round and we're able to trap most of our concession so we can actually go out and target wolves uh, in moose wintering grounds or caribou wintering grounds and it takes a lot of time and efforts getting into those remote areas, but we are able to, uh, yeah, keep our wolf numbers to, uh, you know, a good level. It's, uh, which is definitely key. Like wolves, I have no issues with wolves, probably my favorite animal, quite honestly, but they do need to be controlled to have healthy game populations. Yeah, that, that, I, I'm same with you. Like I don't, I don't, uh, I don't hate wolves whatsoever. Um, but you know, Wyoming, for instance, they just certain areas, you know, they, they passed where we could actually hunt them. And that just happened. The one area I think just opened two years ago or something like that. So, um, not being able to do anything about it, you know, that the wolves definitely get frustrating. Uh, cause, cause like you, I, I, they, they need predators, you know, we got to have predators out there. Hunters, hunters, there's not enough of us to, to manage it effectively. There's no way. Um, but at the same point, it, the wolves could get out of hand very quickly, especially when, when there's not, there's no predators hunting them. But I, I bet that, that uh, I bet you guys just spend miles after miles on snow machines out there or snowmobiles, you know, trying to uh, get into those wintering grounds and set up trap lines and all that kind of stuff. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, I I run quite a few different snowmobiles, but uh, I know one snowmobile I actually paid attention on my odometer, and I did 3,500 miles on that one snowmobile, and I did run another one for, I can't say exact numbers, but yeah, we, we definitely put a lot of miles on. We When the rivers freeze, we can cruise up the rivers, and uh, what happens in the, in the wintertime when we get our big snow load, the moose actually get forced out of the mountains down to the rivers because uh, the rivers, when they get snow on them, uh, on the ice, they'll flood and then uh, refreeze. And then you get a lot less snow right on the river itself versus everywhere else. So the moose can use that as a good area to walk around and access the willows right along the side of the river easily. So then the wolves will follow the moose down and then you kind of have a concentrated area where the moose and the wolves are. And that's how we were kind of able to catch lots of, well, a bunch of wolves in the, by targeting those areas. And uh, here we're a little bit more finicky because uh, they, they're in herds and uh, there's only certain spots they can winter because they need a lot less snow in general everywhere because they're eating a lichen of the forest floor. So it's, they really do need to be a spot where there's less snow and those spots are a lot more difficult for us to access. But uh, that being said, we do still get to some of those areas and yeah, we keep plugging away on wolves and, and it's a, they're a very, very interesting animal. They're really just a dog and you can go and catch 80% of the wolves out of in an area. And then the next year they're back to that number even more. Like they're, <laughs> you'd almost have to harvest 95% of them to actually drop their population. 
it that that's so insane you know with the number of litter or puppies they have in a litter because i i don't know you know on average what they have but i'd assume it's probably like what six to nine on average in a litter or something like that yeah yeah same as a dog yeah. uh, they have a, a lot lower success rate and it does depend on on animals if there's lots of game uh like well you guys down south you have higher game densities than we do just easier winters and stuff like that so your pup survival will be a lot higher uh up here i don't know actually pup survival rates but uh it's not not uncommon to see only two or three pups make it for the next winter out of a well they only have one one litter per pack but yeah they it's a, it's a hard life for them still it's a you can only imagine trying to take down a full size moose with your teeth yeah yeah no kidding no kidding that yeah here we are out there with you know whatever whatever weapon we actual weapon we have but yeah run behind it and bite it on the ass with your teeth and see how that goes <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a yeah what how much on average you know how much snow are, are you guys looking at getting there we we obviously vary like any place, but uh, I would say average would be way steep in the height of the winter um, oh, in most smokes. of our area. And the thing with that is we we don't get any you know melting and unthawing midwinter. It, when we get snow, it just accumulates. So gotcha. we're not in particular like a really a wet area where you get a lot of snow. Uh, it's just enough and. You know, moose are built for it. Their, you know, their belly line would probably be three and a half foot high, so they can they can get through a lot of snow without much difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. So, in your, uh, you know, kind of in your off season, uh, you know, you obviously mentioned that you're that you're out hunting predators and things like that. I mean. What what other kind of stuff are you doing in your off season to uh, to prepare for hunters coming up? I mean, are you doing kind of the typical type of scouting where you're going out and seeing what what you guys have, or um, you know what what does it all look like? Yeah, we we don't do a lot of scouting. Our areas like the just the geography kind of limits where the animals will congregate so we have spots where there's always going to be moose during the rut uh, there'll be spots where we'll find the moose before the rut uh, the caribou are very traditional and where they go so your big plateaus and stuff like that you're, you're always going to find them there and our animals do move a lot even a, a moose that you know they don't consider them to be moving very far but yeah, moose can travel 20 to 30 miles just in one year, easily just moving around. So it's really hard to pre-scout. So just general game populations. When we're out there, we observe, like observe the populations, you know, watch the cow-calf ratios and, and you can kind of see a population trend that way. And, and, uh, we're very mobile. So if we're seeing even mid season when we're out hunting and, and you're on a, a lake and there's just not much activity, we just fly them to over to another lake and, and do that sort of thing. But um, as far as off-season stuff goes, uh, basically we wrap up our hunting season in October, uh, November, December, we do quite a bit of trapping, and that's obviously catching wolves and other fur-bearing animals, which actually do pay the bills or covers your gas money to get out there and catch the wolves. The wolves are not worth a lot of money and they're hard to catch mm -hmm. and then uh january february kind of a a slower time of year but we generally go down to a few sports shows and markets um find new hunters to pick up here and then march and april we do a lot of snowmobiling um hauling in freight into some of our remote camps and freight includes horse feed so we alfalfa cubes, oats, um, that sort of thing. And we can preload some of the camps. It's very heavy material and the horses need that extra energy and, um, and all that. And 
saves us having to fly it in later on in the year when you're you're only limited well a very small amount of weight can actually go in the airplane so you try and get all that bulky stuff in ahead of time and we haul fuel into camps where we're using jet boats or quads and things like that and and uh just general camp supplies propane bottles the big awkward bulky things and uh so right now it's it's early april so we've just wrapped up all that um just as we're kind of starting to lose a lot of our snow and we'll have about a month of a, a slower time period when the rivers are still froze but we can't get on them with the jet boat so we generally start working on our horses finding a few new ones to replace our older ones and getting all their feet trimmed and looked after and and uh yeah and then june starts and we're going out cutting trails um redoing some camps making new ones and uh july we start working with the horses again getting them trailed up to the mountains and shot if uh yeah if they need it and yeah and then we get right into the season starting august 1st that's 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 really cool um with with your guys's camps are they are they actual uh you know like cabins that you've built out there or are they like a wall tent type camp what what is it yeah we we have a lot of cabins and okay. we've, uh, we use a little, a little portable bandsaw mill so we we can actually you know our old existing camps so we've you know stayed in wall tents for you know years and years we've replaced a lot of those with small little 12 by 12 16 by 16 cabins that we've you know, went in in the winter time with the little sawmill and and used some of the trees right close by and built these little cabins that are very very basic, but they're you know always warm and dry. And generally, when you show up to them after a year, there's usually the doors wide open or bears ripped it open or broke a window to get in and rolled stuff around. So you usually have to do a quick cleanup and then yeah, you have you know a nice little shelter. <laughs> It, you know, uh, we in at least where I live right now in in Wyoming, I, there's not a tons of bears around, but it always has amazed me how uh, you know how curious they can be, uh, and uh, either that or they're just like, yeah, there's got to be food in there. I, you know, who knows? I I don't know which one it is. I can't read their mind, but uh, man, they just they just seem so. They seem like they have quite a bit of personality, you know. No, it's it's true, and I I believe they're they're not even trying to get into those cabins for food because most of those cabins are completely clean. There's no food left in them. I, I think they just have fun. They're just out in the wilderness and can't see their cabin and oh, it's something new and check it out. And they they have very little fear, so they they get right in there and roll stuff around. And they do get a bonus if they do find a little food, and they'll probably do that the rest of their lives if they've gotten one reward out of it but uh yeah they're they're hard animals to keep out we've tried our best over the years trying to keep them out we've made you know called a bear board with nails through plywood and then nailed into the window frames or you know inside the door frame and using sharp little drywall nails and uh yeah, we've tried everything, and just if they want in, they seem like they're just going to get in regardless of what you put in front of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I th- I I could agree with that. Uh, seen some some pictures of some stuff that grizzlies have tore up, and you you always are thinking, you know what? How in the world did they do that to that? You know, it's just it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> do you? Uh, do you guys, when you're actually hunting, do you have many issues with bears, you know, uh, maybe bluff charging or charging or messing with your guys' meat on the meat poles or or any kind of issues like that? Or is there just, I don't know, they kind of know you guys are, are predators when it comes to hunting season? Yeah. Again, in the Yukon, we're, we're quite lucky because we can shoot our grizzly bears. So right. I think we have a lot less problems problems versus other places so 
if you have an aggressive bear that's coming into camp and be, you know stealing meat or just being a an outright nuisance and if it's dangerous we're legally allowed to shoot it and you know in defense so uh, so some of those problem bears do get removed and and all that so um but when you have meat hanging in camp everybody's super careful even though it's not that common of a problem everybody's still you know you have your meat rack and good visibility you trim the willows out from around it so you can see it from a long ways away uh camps you try to keep clean um just uh out on the trails you're with a horse it it helps a lot horses are amazing animals and they really do pick up a lot so they can uh they generally let you know if, if there's a bear around close if they smell it they'll get a little skittish and antsy and then of course the guides really right. pay attention and it saves a few close encounters um and then just in general you, you know you're seeing sows and cubs which are obviously quite dangerous and you know you just they clear them and give them as wide a path as you can give them. Um, and then when we're hunting them, you do run into, that's probably the most dangerous situations. And most of the time, everything goes very smoothly. People do a great job and, you know, put the bear down very quickly. But occasionally, nerves get in the way and maybe a, a willow that leads to a bullet not going quite where it's supposed to. And, yeah, then things can get very extremely dangerous. and uh, I think that's comes down to probably our most dangerous, you know, parts every year is if the bear's wounded and, and yeah, you want to do your effort on actually retrieving the bear and and uh, completely killing it and and uh, sometimes in that process it's uh, extremely dangerous and um, you get some scenarios that come up but no it's a it's a very very dangerous animal and everybody's got a lot of respect for them so they. They definitely, yeah, there's, uh, most of the guides carry pretty big caliber guns and usually lever actions, open sights, things like that, just for a little quicker shooting if needed. Right, right. More like a brush type gun. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with yeah. horses, um, I've I've ran pack strings before, but nothing nothing the size of what you're talking. You know, maybe maybe two to four horses in my pack string. Uh, do you guys do you guys typically run all all uh, all fifteen of your horses in one single string, or you know, does the guide have some, and then the horse wrangler has some? And uh, what what kind of what kind of stuff goes into you know? Are do you guys typically buy the horses that are that are ready to be in a pack string or you, are you buying them and then get breaking them all yourselves yeah so to answer your first question yeah they when you're moving camp uh so when you have say your two guides a wrangler and two hunters everybody obviously goes together all the horses together um you know you know out of 15, you're probably you're going to be riding five of them. And there's usually seven to eight pack horses and then usually a spare or two. And uh, they just all follow along. It's a pretty easy process. And then uh, once you're actually at a camp and then you're going to go hunting for the day, uh, we leave the horses hobbled and uh, they just sit around camp and eat while the, you know, the five go out and ride and hunt for the day. And then we usually rotate. So one day those five get ridden and the next day they get the day off and another five go and just try and keep them spread out so nobody gets overworked or overused. And uh, yeah, what was your other question? Uh, do you guys, uh, you're typically, you know, buying horses that are, that are pretty well broke or are you, you know, buying them green and breaking them the way that, that will fit your guys' needs the best? Yeah. Okay. So for a lot of years, we actually just raised our own. So we, we had a few studs and mares and we just ran it as a big, family string really and as the, the new ones young guys would come up we'd work on them and and most of them really needed very little work and they're just fit in like nothing and then we we decided to start uh well not raising our own and buying and we'd you know buy them broke already and 
generally it's, they still needed a lot of tweaking before they're ready to do our thing. And then recently I've, yeah, I kind of went to a little bit of a different market where I'm buying them and, and I'm kind of more buying a ranch horse that's been used as roping and, you know, out in the mountains, pulling cows out of the mountains and roping. And they just, they seem to be a lot better. They're used to crossing creeks. They had a rope swing over their heads and that generally will mean they're not going to be spooking at too many things. Right. So those seem to have made a lot, a lot of difference uh, when they're showing up here and just being able to put right into our string and, and fitting in. Probably the only challenge we see is, is the, you're not, uh, they're not getting, you know, they're eating mountain grasses, which are high in protein, but as the season goes on, their grass starts to lose its value and we supplement with oats and alfalfa, but uh, you really have to be careful on the horse. You have to, well, find what we call an easy keeper that keeps the weight on a little, a little better than most. And then, then that's, that's probably the only thing we really have to watch out for. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I, that's something that I wouldn't even have thought of, you know, uh, coming from, from a food source that is, you know, help, you know, X and Y to them and then getting up there and they no longer have that. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense, especially, especially when it's, you know, being a, being a workhorse for you guys. Uh, I could, I could see how, uh, keeping the weight on and, you know, keeping their, their energy up would be extremely important for everything you need to do with them. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And we, we've switched over to trying to, get a certain breed of horse now too that really does seem to be a little better than the rest and that's the fjord horse and uh they come in a a lot of different mixes as well but the purebred fjord was kind of one of the first horses i guess and they're very very strong bomb proof horses and they can live off next to nothing and they usually have good personalities and all that and yeah so those since we've started using them, we've seen them to be really one of the better ones out of everything we've tried. And then if you mix it with uh, another more common, like a quarter horse or Morgan, yeah, we seem to get some really good horses out of those mixes as well. Huh. That's interesting. That, that, that surprises me. I, I would, um, I would have thought that maybe something like a, a mule or something like that had, had been really beneficial to you guys. Um, I've honestly never owned one, but the people that I know that have them, all they do is rave about how great their mules do <laughs> and how sure footed they are, but I've never had one. So I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's it's very true about the mules. I've just never used them, but I've I've heard a lot of people that I I definitely well they're in my industry and they they know what they're talking about right, rave right. about them and so I I think the key is you're supposed to either buy a really really good one or they take a lot of work to get set up. But yeah, I don't think you can just buy one and yeah, it's going to work out great. You really have to <laughs> look at it. Just yeah. buy one and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do know because I uh, I have a little bit of a farrier background, so I do know that those those mules, unlike horses, they'll 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 literally watch you, and they're so they can aim so well and are so deadly with their hooves that they're just watching. And they, oh, he's about to bend over, and this as you bend over, they will clock you right upside the head with pinpoint accuracy, man. I, yeah. I do know that much about him. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, I would, wouldn't want to experience that. No, me neither. Me neither. I, uh, uh, when I went to my farrier school, one of the instructors, he's like, yeah, went to go work on this mule that was, that was known for kicking. So I put on my, my helmet and face mask and went over there and started working on it and it kicked me and knocked me out. <laughs> oh, wow. But anyway, it's kind of a rabbit hole over there. Um, so what, uh, you know, obviously you've been doing this for, for a long, long time, what's, you know, what's, what's some of your favorite parts of, you know, living the, the outfitter lifestyle? Um, 
it's actually I think it would shock most people, but uh, there's definitely a few like highlights that I I really enjoy about my job. And quite honestly, the one that people wouldn't realize is I actually don't get out to the bush very often anymore. I'm I'm in in our at our base, and I'm meeting the the new clients and getting getting them all set up to go out on their trip. And then when people come out, I'm looking after them, getting things sorted for them. And I'm uh, basically a glorified dispatcher as well. All my guides are in reaches. So they're, they're communicating with me from the bush, you know, via satellite texting devices. And, and so anyways, I'm, I'm in, I'm at our base. And uh, the thing I get the most enjoyment out of is actually when a hunt's completed and our, one of our big planes goes out and brings the uh, successful hunters in and a whole load of meat. Once the clients are gone, I have this pickup truck with, you know, two complete moose in there, quarters, ribs, neck meat, briskets, tenderloins, back straps, whatever. And uh, some of the hunters flying can't take all their meat home. So I get left with a lot of meat only because I've reassured them that there's lots of people that want it. So I run around to my small community dropping meat off, like fresh, delicious moose meat. And it's extremely rewarding being able to give away so much meat. It's like the the smiles and the thanks you get from people. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it is probably my favorite part of the job, quite honestly, even though it doesn't have much to do with the actual hunt is just giving all that meat away. Um, and then the next part is, uh, I just talked about the inReach devices. It's it's really cool at night uh, communicating with my guides because at one time I could have as many as 11 guides in different camps spread out throughout that whole concession. And at night I get updates. So it's it's all live. I'm hearing about uh, a big moose that got away or a moose that was shot and how big it is, a quick little story. So I get access to all that stuff at night. and. My evenings are, it's pretty neat. I, I like all the good news, but uh, it does come with some very stressful news at times as well. When oh, I bet. aren't running right or, or, you know, planes can't get out to the camp because the weather's bad and, you know, those sort of things. But I guess. Horse wrecks, everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with your, with your inReach, are you, uh, is that all via like, like, uh, text type message or are you are you talking with them you know kind of more over the phone you know, audio style how how is that working it, it is all by text gotcha. so the unreach is made by my garmin and it's all satellite communicated so even when they send me a text you know saying they just got a big bull moose um in that message if they select it which i do get my guides to leave on is their gps location i can actually hit their the link and then it pops up on my phone a map and exact location where they are where they got this moose and it's great just for my own personal curiosity and and also for safety if you know they're cleaning that moose and bear comes in and they you know have a if something really bad happen i can i can send somebody out there right to that exact spot like immediately so they're, right. they're really cool devices yeah that's uh because i and, and i was curious because i i have an older style uh in reach as well and and that's i love that and, and so does my wife because i i do quite a bit of hunting by myself you know so like this last year when i shot a, an elk uh in grizzly country you know i was able to say hey you know i shot this elk uh, and just like you're saying, she knows because I have mine turned on. I, you know, text people that I trust. <laughs> um, I, yeah, you know, hey, this is this is what happened. This is what went down, and she knows exactly where I am, which is which is excellent. You know, if you haven't heard from me in X amount of time, <clears throat> start wondering what's going on. Um, there's there's one out there that I that's called uh and you you might have know about it it's called Iridium Go and I've never used yep. it but I've heard really good things about it as well uh except for you're actually able to you know utilize your phone and talk on it um I did hear though that it has about uh 
I don't remember, 30 second to one minute delay. And it basically said, if you're able to get over that delay, then, then you'll be able to use it really well. But if you can't get over the delay, it's probably better to just text. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have no experience with the, the Go. I, I am aware of it, and I know a few people that use it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, everything we've, we've tried, we've, we have a few sat phones in our main camps now, um, and they're, they're great, but these inreaches are, are just absolutely amazing. They, yeah, even like our pilots, I can give our pilot one of them, and I can actually track them where they're flying, so I know exactly where they are, and you're dealing with so many miles of wilderness it's it's nice to know where people are in case something happens yeah absolutely uh i think it's uh i just want to commend you for uh you know going out and and being able to use that meat and give it to folks and families that really need that uh because i I, I know that feeling, I guess I'm probably not at the scale that you do, obviously, but you know, there, there's times when, when we'll have more than enough meat just for my wife and I, and my two boys, you know, so we will, uh, I'll, I'll have friends or family or whatever that weren't, weren't able to get out, you know, and, and it's, and it's so nice and rewarding to be able to, to be able to help them out. Like you say, with such, such amazing quality, quality meat. And I just want to commend you for that. And, and that meaning so much to you, cause I could just, I could just hear it in your voice that, that, that means a lot to you. So I think that's really awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a great thing. And uh, our small community up here, it's, it's quite expensive to buy meat and, and moose is better than anything you can buy in a store anyway, but just the, the quality of the meat and, you know, I, I have to still be very liberal on how much I, or well, not liberal, conservative on how many I have, or how much meat I, meat I give each person. Uh, we take approximately 25 moose a year, and I would say half of that meat probably goes home with the hunters still. Um, some people are very determined to get all their meat home and will drive two, three days from the lower 48 to get up here and haul it all home. Um, and people flying, they'll, I've seen, I've seen one guy bring his entire moose home in coolers Holy um, on an airplane, <laughs> like checking in, he, he checked in with, uh, eight big coolers plus his rifle case and a duffel bag. And I don't know how he managed to get through all the airports and, and, uh, picking up bags, uh, yeah. but he did it. He was determined. So, uh, yeah, good on him. But, uh. Yeah, I reassure people that, yeah, I actually, I try and talk people into leaving meat uh, as well, even if they're going to bring it all, if they could leave just something so I can give it away. Uh, it's a really desired uh, thing up here. And, and uh, yeah, it's just a really, really, I don't know, it's a, it's a perk of the job for sure, you know, to give to people. And we have, we have quite a few charitable organizations in town, like we have a, a women's shelter and the neat thing is is i can go there and drop off two moose quarters you know, approximately 200 pounds of meat and just bring them the quarters and they'll bring somebody in to cut it and wrap it right on spot and yeah then the ladies have their their meals for however well pretty much most of the year there and our schools uh both we have an elementary school and a high school in town both of them always take uh, usually two quarters of moose meat each and they'll cut it all up. They'll show the students how to cut and wrap, grind, uh, make dry meat, um, stuff like that. And then if they have an event at the school, they'll usually do a big stew and it's usually out of moose meat or something like that that the students have cut up. And that's pretty neat being in a town up north where they actually do take wild game meat and utilize it. It's pretty neat. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree completely. I mean, um, in Wyoming, for instance, if, you know, we, we, we hit a deer one time on the road and it's happened obviously more than once, but, um, barely even hit it basically just enough to cripple it. So, you know, we went over there and, uh, and put it down and then called the game warden. Cause we're like, Hey, this, we would love to take all this meat home and eat it. And, uh, in Wyoming, you're still not allowed to do that yet, apparently. 
And I was just like, man, that is, that just seems so crazy to me. I know that's a little bit different, you know, being roadkill as opposed to um, what, you know, somebody hunted, but still, I think that's just so amazing that, uh, that it's, it's ex- basically accepted, you know, in your guys' community and where you are that, hey, yeah, what do you have? What do we have at school for lunch? Today? We're having moose stew. Oh, my favorite, you know, that's, that's so cool. Like, yeah. we, we've never in our lives had moose stew at school before. So that's just, yeah. that is so awesome. <laughs> uh, with uh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask you real quick about your planes because uh, you were you were talking about your pilots just a little bit ago. Do you guys uh, – do you own your planes and then hire out a pilot or do you find a pilot that has a plane and then hire it as kind of like you contract the work out? How does, how does that work? Yeah, so every outfit's different and uh, what, what we do – and so we do have a very small, like super cup type plane uh-huh. and my uncle does our flying, but we're, we don't run it as a commercial plane. So we only use it for, you know, personal business use. We go check camps with it. We haul in, you know, small amounts of freight and supplies, uh, but we're not allowed putting clients in it and uh, just with our license. So we use it just to kind of maintain things and, uh, yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's more of a pleasure plane. <laughs> um, and then what we do for the rest of our flying is we have a local company in town and we just hire them to do all our, our client flying. So they, they have bigger planes. Uh, probably the most common plane we use is a beaver on floats. And so it will haul 1100, 1200 pounds, uh, or three or four passengers. And, that's that's the main plane we use and we and for my point of view i hire them and it's uh, just one thing i don't have to worry about as much because it's another company looking after it uh they gotcha. they're very careful and safe with their you know when there's bad weather they're the ones that are making the call and you know they they don't have <laughs> it takes the stress away from me if it was my company or you know you'd be worried a lot more about yeah, the plane aspect where I can put that on somebody else's shoulders and they're safe and, and very, very, yeah, capable company for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, especially, you know, uh, my my uh, my wife is a pilot uh, and, and uh, her dad was a pilot his whole life, you know, and her mom has her pilot's license, but they, they talked about, you know, that the, the – how expensive just owning a plane is, you know, with the the maintenance and the the required checkups and all that kind of stuff. And I I could see definitely where uh, where it could be a huge benefit to just find a company you know, like and trust, and say, hey, this is when we need you. You know. <laughs> no, it's true. They're extremely expensive. Insurance is extremely expensive. Uh, there's. <laughs> It, it really is. It's, it is nice to be able to pass that on to somebody else and, and it's their business. So they take pride in everything and, and everything is done properly. And yeah, we just book our flights in and that's the other thing is it's a very sought after uh, thing up here. So when I'm booking my flights, I, I'm actually booking sometimes two years in advance on my dates to get that aircraft for those certain days. And uh, it's a definitely a logistical challenge trying to coordinate and be that scheduled. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. I bet it's kind of like trying to herd cats. <laughs> yeah. Can be. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I would, I would really like to, uh, to maybe, talk about some of maybe your whether it's most memorable hunt that uh that was for you or maybe one of your family members or maybe maybe some just some a hunting story or a one or two that that just really stand out that you just for whatever reason they just 
really made a big impact on you. Uh, it would it would be awesome if you if anything like that comes to mind. I'm sure you got probably thousands of stories, um, but maybe one or two stands out more than the rest. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, it it would be really really hard to choose one just for my guiding or outfitting career, but. Uh, one did stand out, and uh, so my wife, Courtney, um, it was the first year we were married, and it was actually my first year outfitting as well, um, you know, full on myself, and, you know, parents are still involved in the business, but when I pretty much, you know, took on everything, so it was a very stressful time of my life, trying to keep everything in, on schedule and everything coordinated properly and logistics running smoothly. And uh, we just wrapped up a pretty big hunt change where people had, you know, come in and gone out and everything went really smoothly. And and generally you get one or two days to recover and, you know, start doing small things just to get ready for the next change, which usually happens seven to eight days later. And she told me, she's like, you know what, you really need to get out hunting. And I was like, well, I can't go in the middle of our season. There's just no way it too much going on and she said no we really just need to do it just go for a date so uh yeah with her basically forcing me to go uh <laughs> we loaded up and uh we uh we got up at about three in the morning and and uh took off and we just went with loaded up in argo and we went to a spot pretty close to our hometown here where it's a, a resident only so i wasn't you know, competing against any of my clients or anything like that. Didn't want to cause any anything bad to happen, and, and right. we we just went just to, just to get out. We I I I don't need to shoot anything. I we have enough meat and all that, so we just went out to just have a good day, um, just myself and her and our dog. And and it turns out it was uh, by far the best moose day I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Holy it was smokes! Just one of those days where there's just animals everywhere. We chased off, I don't know, three, four moose just on the road, driving into our spot and uh, in the dark. And then uh, we unloaded and first spot I stopped and called. I called in a nice little young 40-incher and got to call him right in. That was cool. And then the next spot I stopped and called, same thing, called another one in right up to the Argo and thought that was cool. And it's always fun calling them in. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we got up, up on top of this nice little ridge and, and sitting there glassing and, and right away I spot just a humongous bull, uh, probably high 60 inch range, just a huge, huge bull, one of the bigger ones I've seen. And it was just too far away for us to get to. There's no way we could get to him in our, in our one day time period. And the train is really rough and all that. And, and uh, so I was looking at him in the spotting scope, and then I thought, well, I'll give it one one chance uh, trying to call him. And it was just, it was so far, so I knew my voice wouldn't carry. So an old trick I learned was with a chainsaw, which I had in the Argo to cut trees out of the way off our trail, uh, you can fire up the chainsaw and then rev it quite loudly, and that noise carries, and it actually does sound like a cow moose calling from a distance. No so way! I fired up the chainsaw. <laughs> Yeah, so fired it up and started revving it and watching in the spotting scope. I had Courtney watching, and he wouldn't even look our way. So I knew the, the noise wasn't getting to him. So I was like, well, that's just a shame, but cool to see. And uh, then right away, uh, kind of looked down the ridge directly below us, and there's a really nice bull, uh, probably mid-50s, uh, coming to the chainsaw call. And he was trotting. You know, he was probably about a mile away. And he trotted to us within 200 yards and um, my wife had never shot a moose and, you know, she actually was like debating on it and she asked me if I would, you know, let a client shoot it. And I said, yeah, absolutely. It's a great bull. And then she said, well, would you shoot it? And I said, no, you know, I don't really need to shoot him. And, you know, he's a nice bull, but no, it's all good. And so she decided not to shoot him because uh she didn't think it was big enough if I wouldn't shoot him. So okay. anyways, uh, yeah, we passed on him and yeah, it was kind of cool just seeing that. And yeah, from that location, we've seen, I would say six bull moose. Um, 
one other one that was probably low 50s, just another nice bull, and then a couple of young ones, quite a few cows. And then I just glanced out into one clearing, and same thing from that chainsaw call. And here's this just absolute bull of a lifetime, humongous bull standing there looking our way and i revved the chainsaw some more and he just stood there and looked at us but that was it and he was probably two and a half to three miles away so i he was within our range but he wasn't going to come any closer and so off we went and we took off as hard as we could down there and we had our dog with us who was just a pup and not trained at all and uh, my wife kind of recognized my excitement and she said no you just go get them i'll stay here with the dog and <laughs> so anyways i parked them in a spot where they could see and i started calling and because the bullet disappeared by the time i got there and i heard a grunt from a long ways away way past where he was and all of a sudden the grunt came closer so i knew he was on his way towards us so I uh, closed the distance a little bit and uh, her and the dog could actually view the whole thing and yeah, we called this great big bull uh, into, I think it's about 50 yards or so, and I ended up shooting him with my rifle, and and uh, we got up to him, and he was 72 and a half inches wide, and he scored two, smokes. and he was 246 Bruno Crockett, just like the biggest bull I'd ever guided, seen, anything, just a humongous bull, and so, yeah. It was it was just a complete luck thing. It was in a spot that was actually quite heavily hunted by by locals. There was quad tracks everywhere. I just did not expect to see that kind of caliber just in a random spot like that. And but uh, it was pretty amazing to have my wife there and dog and a one day trip. And we never got home till three in the morning. But uh, <laughs> yeah, what a day! Oh my goodness, I could only imagine. I. That's just insane. I and mean, I'm I'm not a very big guy, you know, I'm only five foot six. So hearing of something that's seventy-two inches, I just think to myself, like <laughs> I could put a hammock in between there and just be fine. <laughs> you know, that's just that oh, is yeah. insane. <clears throat> yeah. It, I got a little bit of slack slack from from locals. They're like, Oh, why would you shoot something so big? Can't eat the thing and uh, no word of a lie, best, like, best moose I've ever eaten. Like, we cut one-inch thick back straps off him and put them on the grill, and you could cut them with a fork. Like, it's not always the big guys that face or are too tough or anything like that. Like, sometimes those big guys, they don't have to fight anybody else, and and so they're actually in really good shape. And, yeah, he was, he was absolutely amazing, and we kept half the moose for ourselves, and then we – half to, to some other friends and family and stuff like that and, and uh yeah and the other part of that story is so we had them all loaded up and off we went and right i don't know about we kind of got them loaded up right on dark and we only went another uh, 15 20 minutes coming down this little ridge and and then you can see these two headlights and a little clearing in front of us and here's another bull like mid 60s full palms lots of little points just a beautiful bull and just to top off the day like i could not believe how many big big bull moose we've seen in one day it was unreal huh. that is so cool and and on top of it like you say to, to get to 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 go out for a day and experience all that with your wife you know and your dog and just Man, that is just that is so cool. I I bet you were just in shock and awe when all that finally came together. <laughs> That's awesome. It it was. It was done a lot of hunting over the years. And uh, the other funny part is I've lived in the Yukon my whole part or my whole life. And that's the first moose I've shot. And it's my only moose I've shot. I've just never needed to shoot one. Always going out, I've guided for tons of them and I just always have meat and no reason to and yeah so my first and only bull <laughs> that is so awesome man <clears throat> yeah I think you know if more if more people had experiences like that on the first time out hunting and I know that wasn't your first time obviously but if uh 
you know, if, if people, especially, especially someone that is on the fence about hunting, if they were able to go out and not even shoot anything, but just go out and experience that kind of, whether it be that kind of deer, that kind of elk, that kind of moose, you know, just experience that many animals and, and them being, you know, them being them, you know, not, not be, not running from vehicles or whatever, just them rutting and, and being animal behavior full on. I think so many more people would be, would be out there doing it. You know, that's just, man, that's such a, that's such an awesome story. And thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Oh, no problem. It gets me excited every time I actually tell it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. That, that right there tells it it really meant something to, you know, if, if you ever retell a story and it's as if you're going through the motions then that story didn't mean what you thought, but if you get excited and worked up and like, I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, just listening to it. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You can, you'll find the picture of that bowl on my Instagram account. I posted it, I don't know, a couple, a couple weeks ago or a month ago, and it'll just be a really exceptionally large bowl. That is, I, I'm going to go look it up right now. <laughs> oh man. And I'll use that for my, uh, my cover photo. No, <laughs> when I, when I uh, post, there you post, go. About your, post about your episode, I'll be like, yeah, see, <laughs> my goodness. This yeah. might be, yeah. I don't know. The bowl of yesterday's picture. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one, huh? My goodness. I, I, you know, especially once again, uh, go, you know, living, living around Shiras Moose, right? And it, there's, there's still plenty big. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and you just, you get up close to even a Shiras Moose, you're just like, oh my gosh, but those moose that you guys have there just dwarf what we have here. So I just, honestly, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even fathom being, being 50 yards or 30 yards or whatever from a, from a moose of that size. I I'd probably would fall over and miss. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, Man. yeah, they're, they're pretty neat. Uh, uh, one other quick little story, and it's it's more telling it just because it it can give somebody a full on experience of what we do. Yeah. Um, for quite a few years, I did carry just a little handy cam, and when I was guiding, and occasionally you get you know kind of some neat footage. And one year, just got outright lucky on the footage we got, and I had this bow hunter and we a young guy and his father, and we called this bull in, and the bull held up like at five yards away. He's full draw and he shoots the ball. Uh, it was like at four yards or something like that. And oh. I, I posted it on YouTube and, and uh, that video has 4.5 million views or something like that right now. And it's, it's, it's kind of cool that so many people got to experience that moment and, right. and uh, just so glad I had a little video camera with us that day. Cause I got to show lots of family and, friends that really don't get the opportunity to get out there and see all that. So that was a pretty neat deal. Right. And I, and like you say that an experience like that is such a once in a lifetime experience, you know, I mean, yeah, you, you could get to see a lot of moose and stuff like that, but actually being up close in at four yards, you know, hearing the hunters breathing and hearing, you know, your breathing and probably feeling the energy through that film. I mean, that is just such a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, what a, what a great moment to have a little handy cam. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's so cool. Yeah. So you get, you get some really, really neat experiences for sure as, as a guide. And uh, yeah. that was my only real personal experience, but Right. Uh, we did uh, go back there, my wife and actually her sister, and just wanted to go on an overnight trip. Same thing. Actually, it worked out. It was the exact same day, September 16th. But two years later, we went back to the same spot, and I just thought, well, we go to this spot, and you know, hopefully we'll find something and maybe have you know half of good a day as what we had two years ago. And we went up 
there. We had an absolute great time, but we only seen one little four corn bull moose. So yeah, we went home with nothing, but we had a great time, but it was pretty amazing the difference. And you know, there's still lots of moose around. It just wasn't as moosey of a day as it was two years earlier. Right. Right. I actually, I, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because I had uh, kind of the same experience with elk. Uh, this one year I was bow hunting and I got into the spot where there was, I don't know, 12, 15 bulls and they were all just bugling and screaming and a couple of them were fighting. And one of them was, uh, was like an eight by eight and his horns were, were black as night because there was a bunch of, there was a big burn there and you could just tell that he had been rubbing them all on, you know, on the burnt tree. And they were just black as black, except for the very ivory tips. And, uh, then there was, you know, yeah. And there was a couple, you know, 350, 360 bulls and it was just insane. And that was the most elk activity I have ever experienced in my life. And I didn't, I didn't video it with my phone. I didn't, I didn't video anything All I have is just partial memory of what it was like. And it was, you know, I, I know deep down, I'll probably never experience anything like that again. And I just wish, you know, like you, you know, where you had your, had your handicap. I just wish I had a, pulled my phone out at least and, and took a video of it because man that was so insane uh but again you know go go back anywhere close to that uh, area later a couple years later and just never see anything so you know maybe one bull and it's just it's it's so crazy how it just can be night and day difference and not seem different but it, it completely is you know <laughs> Yeah, you, you get those days. As a guide, I definitely seen that. And every every year you have one or two of those days. And as a guide, you're lucky you're out there every single day of the whole season. And you do catch those days. And, and there literally are only one or two of those in the entire season. And it's so cool when you get that day. It's just amazing what you get to experience and the amount of animals and the movement. And and you just wish every day was like that. At least you do get to experience it. It's it's so neat. Right. Absolutely. Well, Joel, I have had an absolute blast having you on the podcast. I could probably sit here and talk to you and ask you questions about everything we've kind of taken just a very small peek into. I could probably ask you questions and stuff like that for the next couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> you know, my goodness, it's just – it's. It's it's basically it's almost like it's a different world, you know. It's just it's so interesting to me and so so cool to hear the stories and what it's like and the things that you guys are doing and what you're going through. I just man, I just I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast and maybe sometime in the future we could have you back on. Uh, it was just man, that was I just really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it too, and it's always fun to talk hunting and share some experiences and all that and yeah no i'm definitely game in the future if you want to yeah talk about something else that'd be great